Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, August 27, 2023. The share ID numbers for Friday, August 25th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 20,572. That's 20572. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 20,573. That's 20573. This morning, A Vision for You presents We Can Recover. Most of us have come to Overeaters Anonymous as a result of the suffering, the frustration, and the continuous despair we experienced in our disease of compulsive overeating. We seem to be caught in a vicious cycle. We are caught in a trap we cannot spring. Put simply, we have an abnormality of the body, an allergy, which means that once we start eating certain kinds of foods, we develop cravings which overpower us, and we have an abnormality of the mind, a mental obsession, which means that even if we stop eating those foods, our mind persuades us that we can return to eating those foods all over again, and again, and again, and again. Thus, we can't stop once we start due to the allergy, and we can't stop from starting again due to the obsession that sends us back. We come to OA looking for a way out a solution which will free us from the bondage of our affliction. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to overcome compulsive overeating, a roadmap of recovery, an inward rearrangement that actually transforms us, As the forward to the first edition states, we have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Yes, it's true. We can recover. With respect to our binge foods, we have been rendered completely neutral. We have been freed from the bondage of self and the bondage of food as a result of the application of the 12 steps. Yes, indeed, we can recover. Joining us this morning to elaborate on this very topic is Tamara C., a recovered compulsive overeater from California. Tamara is a fellow big book enthusiast, eager to carry the message of recovery, and it's with great appreciation that I welcome Tamara C. to the line. Good morning, Tamara. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm Tamara C. And I'm I'm actually now in Missouri. And I'm so grateful 
so grateful to be a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm so grateful to be a part of this strong, healthy OA meeting, a vision for you. Um, I'm uh, just the, the people in this meeting, the shares, everyone here today, the study of the big book has been uh, so helpful to me. And, and the message, the message of this meeting, I really have been encouraged by that part of the script which says, um, you know, our primary purpose is to carry the message, and our message is that we can recover through uh, abstinence and the practice of the, the steps and traditions. And so um, I want to share my experience with um, this message and how it has helped me. My experience with the pain of the food and um, the, the beauty of the recovery. Um, I found this meeting after being in OA for years and then having a miserable relapse and then um, some white knuckle fighting back to get my abstinence. And then uh, it, when I found this meeting, I heard a different kind of recovery, not this miserable fighting the urge to eat, but happy, joyous, and free abstinence. And I really wanted that. Um, so I, I wanted to pick up this spiritual toolkit. I wanted to recover in the way that I heard others on this meeting um, had recovered. So um, I want to talk a bit about my suffering with the food. And, and my most intense suffering came after finding OA and after being abstinent, not not really. I, I, I didn't know quite how to identify all of my alcoholic foods and ingredients, but I, I had had this diet that had worked well for me and it helped me lose weight. So I was following that diet and, and on that diet, I didn't eat um, some of the ingredients that were a problem for me. And so, you know, to the best of my understanding at the time, I was abstinent for several years and then I had a relapse and, and I was just really horrified to see that my disease really is progressive and my pain in the food was much worse than it had been a few years before. So um, in, in my relapse, um, well, before, the, here's the experience that helped me really come to fully admit to myself that I was in relapse. I was going to be traveling with my husband and my father-in-law and my sister-in-law. And we were going to be on a road trip and then uh, staying with other relatives for several days. And we were taking um, the ashes of my mother-in-law to um, another state to, to um, bury them. And I knew this was going to be a difficult trip. And so I thought, you know, I need to take backup food with me so that I can be abstinent. And the, the main backup food that I took were were these like supposedly abstinent cookies that I made with all abstinent ingredients. Um, and I kind of told myself, well, they're not really cookies. They're just like this food item that's really healthy. And, um, and so, and I made a lot. I took a lot because I was going to share them with everyone. And we're, we're traveling and I'm uncomfortable. And so I ate, ate one. And then um, I kept thinking about them. Like, oh, I, I would like to eat another one. 
um, I made that I shouldn't eat one now. And I, and it's like the whole, you know, drive up, I was trying to control it and I wanted to enjoy them, but all I could think about was eating them. And then we, when we got there and we were staying with the people, um, like they had food out there was clearly not abstinent for me. And I said, you know, oh no, thank you. And, um, you know, ate other foods and, um, though, the, um, my husband's aunt, she just made this big deal like, oh, Tamara is so strong. No wonder she's staying thin and made this big deal. And that made me even more uncomfortable because I could feel that I wasn't strong. And um, I would sneak into the room where our luggage was and get out another of these cookies and eat one. And um, I just kept doing that more and more often. And And then on the drive home, I ate the rest of them. I didn't share them at all. I ate all of them. And, and that was when, you know, I just knew. And I, I just said, Tamara, you are in a relapse. You are not in recovery anymore. And, uh, and, and it just got um, really, really bad and painful and scary. I would, um, I, if I had a day off, I would, uh, like, get some food, um, that I, I would tell myself, this is a healthy food. Like, I might get a bowl of um, granola because granola has nutritious stuff in it. I might pour some extra honey on top because honey is not sugar. It's a natural sweetener and put some milk on it. And I would take a bite and get such an effect of, ah, all is well. All is good. I'm okay. And so I would finish the bowl, and but then I wouldn't feel okay anymore. I would feel sad and fearful. So I would go get another bowl. And then I would finish that and then go get another bowl. And then I, I had this shame. I, I can't believe I'm eating so much and I can't stop. And the shame was uncomfortable, so I would eat over the shame. And then there would just be this feeling of horror and fear and pain. Um, if I was going to spend time with family or friends, I was just in misery and resentment because I needed to eat more than ever because I was socially uncomfortable but it wasn't time to eat and they weren't eating and it was um embarrassed you know I was too embarrassed to eat in front of them so I just sit there angry obsessed with when can I eat how can I get some food and um so I did not enjoy being with people at all I started avoiding being with people um if with my husband if we would like go on a road trip like we were going out of town or a day trip I was sure to bring snacks my husband would compliment me. You're so good at making sure we always have snacks. And um, then we would barely be on the road, and I would start thinking of the snacks, and I would try to hold off. Like, uh, you just had breakfast an hour ago, and this is going to be embarrassing if you pull this out right now in front of your husband. So, But then I I would give in. Like, it, I needed that. I needed it. And so then I would try to limit it. I would, like, pull out a certain amount and put the rest of the snacks away, and try to eat it slowly to make it last, but then I would get it back out. And um, if if my husband and I were out on an adventure, like like to um, a fair or um, out like shopping or whatever, um, I could only think about the food. And we would pass some food booth or a restaurant, and I would want to suggest that we go and get some food, but I was embarrassed because, um, you know, <laughs> we had just eaten or something. And so um, even even doing 
spending time with my husband. I was just thinking about the food all the time and and miserable. And then um, at home, I would eat until I needed to go to bed and my food couldn't digest. And then I would wake up and I wasn't hungry, but I needed to eat. I would immediately go eat. And then I couldn't exercise because I was too full to exercise. Um, If I had a, a day off, I might get all these ambitions for all the things I wanted to accomplish in that day. And then I would say, okay, but first let me just sit down and have this snack or breakfast or whatever. And then once I started eating, I just couldn't stop. And my day would be ruined. You know, I'd be just horrified. Like the whole day would go by and I would just shame myself. I can't believe you didn't do anything today except eat. Um, I needed to be eating. I needed to be eating. I was eating against my will. I tried so hard to stop eating and I couldn't stop. Um, this is abnormal, right? This is abnormal. Uh, what was going on? Other people um, would eat a reasonable amount and stop and be thinking about other things and living their lives. And I could not, and I didn't understand, you know, why, why do I have this thing? And so um, I do have the, this allergy part of my disease where I, I trigger this craving beyond my mental control. And for me, one way I it kind of makes sense to me is to think about how I am with um, bug bites, like mosquito bites. I'm really, really sensitive, so I can get a mosquito bite, and it'll turn into this big old welt, and it will just drive me crazy for days. That the itching, the urge to scratch it is so strong. But if I scratch it, then um, I will get this like immediate relief, and then like a few moments later, it's worse. Like it will um, swell up even more and the, in, the itchiness will be even more intense. Um, but it's like I want to scratch it anyway because that temporary relief seems critical. And it, it can be like that with the food. Like I know if I eat this, it, there's going to be more suffering in the long run, but it's going to bring me temporary relief and that seems critical because the pain of dealing with the urge to eat just seems unbearable. So once I scratch, I will soon need to scratch more. And my body's response causes the itching to increase. And no amount of scratching brings permanent relief. And once I take the first bite of my alcoholic food, I will soon need to eat more. My body's response causes the craving to increase. And no amount of eating brings permanent relief. I, I'm helped to understand my disease better, too, in the doctor's opinion. So I want to read a a few quotes from the doctor's opinion in the big book. Um, Let's see here. It says, uh, uh, this is like the little explanation between the two letters that Dr. Silkworth wrote. It says, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic, which leaves out this physical factor, is incomplete. And then... um, The next one is um, in the middle of his second letter. He says, we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These alcoholic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. So my reaction 
seafood is abnormal. Like, I was really surprised to learn when I first came to OA that normal people who stop eating after a reasonable amount of food, it's not that they have more willpower than me, but they actually feel satisfied and lose interest in the food. And I never lose interest. The more I eat, the more I want. And so I can just never safely use it. And then um, I'm going to go to the chapter, There is a Solution, on page 21. It says, what about the real alcoholic? So for me, the real compulsive eater. He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. So once I take that first bite, then I can't stop. I lose all control. And on page 22, it says, um, we know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens, both in the bodily and mentally sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. So my experience as a compulsive overeater definitely confirms this, that um, that there is something going on in my body that's different, that I, um, I know I cannot eat just one of my alcoholic foods and then be able to control it. Okay, so now I get it. This is, this is part of my disease, this allergy of the body. So what do I do about it? What's the treatment for it? So um, I'm going to go jump back to the doctor's opinion. And it says, um, these men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. So I can't not eat. Um, and then later, all of these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. So this is my treatment for this part of my disease. This physical craving, my treatment is entire abstinence. So I needed to get abstinent, and um, that's really hard to do. I, I would sit in meetings and think, you're telling me that I have to be abstinent, but you're also telling me that step one says I'm powerless, so how can I get abstinent? Well. Here, um, here are some things that did help me. And it, it definitely, uh, I believe, you know, at first it, it is white knuckling. It is. And just like um, going on a diet at, at first until I got relief in the steps. And when I first came to OA, um, some things that helped me, um, that were the tools, the tools really did support my abstinence or what I understood to be my abstinence. And, and even though, you know, I believe now that I was still putting some things in my system that were triggering me, I still was able to stick to that meal plan or diet really for a long time. Um, and I, I believe that the tools really helped me hang on. 
the meetings were especially helpful. I went to a lot of face-to-face meetings and I heard things I needed to hear. I learned that, oh, this, this is like an addictive substance. Okay, I get it. I can never eat this. And I would hear abstinence is the most important thing. Um, somebody said one time she, she was in relapse and she said, abstinence is a lifeboat. If you're in the lifeboat, stay in the lifeboat because it's really hard to get back in once you fall out. And so I would tell myself, stay in the light, lifeboat, Tamara. Um, I did a lot of outreach. That helped me just know that I wasn't alone. That supported my abstinence. And I tried to work the steps. I had a sponsor and I worked the steps using OA literature, um, not using the big book. I didn't understand or follow the steps as outlined in the big book, but still what I did, it did give me some, some relief, some help. Um, I, I would, uh, every time I got a craving, I would drink water. That helped me. I would distract myself, uh, read or get into a project until it was meal time. That helped me. And I would give myself these messages, like I would take the last bite of a meal and say, okay, Tamara, you've had all the calories you need. You're okay until your next meal. And that would help. And mostly I was just on this, like I was riding this wave of hope because I was um, I was losing weight. I had this program and I was on a roll. And, and so um, all of this helped me. I didn't want to lose it. Well, then after my um, relapse, I would try to go back and use all these same tools that helped me before. And I could white knuckle a few days and I would get hopeful and then I would pick up again. And I might even, I think one time I I actually got to 30 days and I thought, oh, finally, I've got it back. And then I picked up um, my alcoholic foods again and uh, I just couldn't believe it. And so after um, a very, very painful relapse, when I when I came back, I started going to face-to-face meetings again. Um, I got abstinent, um, but I was I was very clear now that I was powerless, that I was white knuckling, that I was in self-reliance. I felt on edge and was really afraid to hope that this was going to last. And so what helped me was I filled my days with recovery, and um, then I started uh, find, discovering the phone meeting and I started discovering big book meetings and listening to podcasts that were studying the big book. And I made frequent phone calls to uh, my sponsor, to newcomers. And I started calling recovered fellows and asking them what helped them. And as they shared their experience, strength, and hope with me, I was often directed to the big book and, and what the big book says. So this helped me a lot. Um, I still use water to help with cravings and distraction. I use exercises and new messages that I heard in meetings, like I deserve to live and prayer. I reached out to to God. I said, God, do for me what I cannot do for myself. And if I got a craving, I would say, God, thank you for my abstinence. Or later I changed it to God, thank you for freedom. And um, this helped me. And then um, defining my abstinence was really, really key. With a recovered sponsor, I really got honest and clear and learned, understood entire abstinence for me. I learned I couldn't play around with sweeteners or healthy foods. 
because the most unhealthy thing for me is to trigger my disease. So I got very, very clear this time on what um, my abstinence was. And then I um, got a meal plan from a dietitian that was right for my age and my gender and my height and my exercise amount and my chronic illness. So I started following a meal plan using entire abstinence. So today I continue to take my abstinence very seriously. I know that I am not cured of this part of my disease, this allergy of the body, and I could awaken that craving that's beyond my mental control if I um, take one bite of my um, alcoholic food. Well, thanks to the steps, I'm no longer fighting it. I'm no longer white-knuckling it, um, but I still take it seriously. I support my abstinence by um, having a meal plan, following it. I plan ahead for different circumstances, like taking taking food with me, or um, and I check in with my sponsor. I check in with my dietitian if, if anything is changing as I age or whatever, if my body is changing. Um, and I, I'm still learning to ask for help. My disease tells me go it alone. It's not natural for me to reach out, but I am learning more and more that I don't do this alone. I, I, um, I am part of a WE program, and that includes supporting my abstinence. So why am I abstinent? Number one, because it treats this part of my disease, the allergy part of my disease. And then number two, and for me, this is much more critical, this is why uh, I um, take abstinence seriously. I'm going back again to the doctor's opinion. It says, um, though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as an altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who's very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. So what this program has to offer me is a new relationship with a higher power through the steps. And if I'm going to get that effect, I've got to be abstinent. And so that for me is the main reason that I say abstinent. So now I want to talk about the other part of my disease, my main problem which is treated through the spiritual action. So why do I need an effect from the steps? Why can't I just fight that first bite every day for the rest of my life using the meetings and other tools to help me? Why I no longer hold with that old slogan, abstinence is the most important thing in my life today is because in my experience, no matter how long I've been abstinent, someday I will take that first bite. And why, why would I do that? If I knew I couldn't handle just one compulsive bite, why would I go there? Um, well, as I said, like talking about like the mosquito bite, whatever, like eating will cause more suffering in the long run, but it does bring temporary relief. And this seems critical to me in a moment where the pain of living seems unbearable. So when I was um, abstinent before my relapse, um, I was still miserable. I, I was happy that I was thin. That was cool. But 
I in my insides were still really unhappy, very unsatisfied with life. And I would be resentful whenever I heard the promises of the big book read because I was not happy, joyous, and free. I knew it. And I knew I had not ceased fighting anything, even food. I knew that I was still fighting the food. And so um, when I had my horrible relapse, there was greater suffering, intense shame and despair and terror. My eating was worse, and I had this constant obsession with food. That was my constant companion. When can I eat? How can I control my food? How can I get control? How can I stop eating so much? I need to eat. I shouldn't eat. It was constant, and it was really dark and awful. And I, you know, I truly welcomed the idea of, like, dying in a car accident or something. I just didn't want to go on. It felt, it felt unbearable. And I got up and forced myself out the door and went to work and couldn't wait for the day to be over. I just wanted to go to bed and I wanted oblivion. And um, the food didn't give me oblivion very long. And it, I was really in a lot of pain. Um, I'm going to read from page 22. This is in the chapter, There is a Solution. And it says, um, why does he behave like this? So talking about, like, why would I go back to that first bite when I know it's going to increase my suffering? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? And uh, on 23, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than the body. So my main problem is that I turned to the first compulsive bite because I couldn't stand the way I felt in this world, the way that I was in this world. I was desperate for relief, even if it was temporary and led to more pain. I saw oblivion in eating. And in the chapter more about alcoholism on page 35, it says, so we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. So if this is the crux of my problem, what, what was my mental state that preceded that first bite? Or a relapse, and or, which is a relapse. So my mental obsession is that um, even abstinent and thin, I have this obsession to blot out the unbearable pain and suffering that remains, which for me is the pain of living. And in We Agnostics, um, on the bottom of page 50, says, once confused and baffled, by the seeming futility of existence, they show the underlying reasons why they were making heavy going of life. Leaving aside the drink question, they tell why living was so unsatisfactory. So I want to share how I was making heavy going of life. Um, it, it was a lot, it was all like this internal thinking stuff. What I thought, 
and felt about myself, who I, who I am and my way of being in this world. There was intense shame. And I, I did this to myself because I thought shame was a helpful tool that could motivate me to do better. There was a lot of um, perfectionism. There were a lot of expectations. I thought these expectations were from the world, the universe, God, but they were really my own that I was putting on myself. And, you know, I didn't see all of this. Um, I, I just thought this was normal. Like, this is how people feel. And they just keep trying to do better, and other people just do better than me. But all of this pain and self-loathing, I didn't really, like, identify it as that. I just thought this is how people feel in life. Um, and my way of dealing with life was I would bully myself. I would drive myself, terrorize myself, criticize myself. I would hide the real me and ignore my real feelings and wants. I chased everything. I chased peace in all the wrong ways. I chased the feeling of usefulness by trying to run the show. I chased security. I chased approval. I chased worthiness and accolades and enoughness and self-esteem. And I chased it all through my efforts to figure life out and get it right, to force my will by managing myself better. And, and I tried to manage the rest of the world around me, too. I especially tried to manage my performance and the opinions of others. So I was always chasing, and it was never, ever enough. And this this terrible, painful mixture of shame and self-loathing I needed relief from, even if it was temporary, and led to more shame. And so I would eat over it. So as miserable as I was eating compulsively, it was just a symptom of my main problem. Food is what I turned to to escape what was so, quote, unsatisfactory, but in my case, absolutely unbearable. This part of my disease, um, you know, I just, I didn't know about for a long time. When I first came to OA, I really got it like, oh, this is like um, addictive. This is something I can't ever eat. But I wasn't aware of this part of my disease, this internal pain and dissatisfaction with life that would drive me to the first bite. And, you know, I mean, I, I just didn't know any better and I was doing the best I could with, with old ideas about how I was supposed to be in the world. So what, what helped? What's the treatment for this part of my disease, this mental obsession? And the answer is a new relationship with a higher power that I get through the steps. This is, for me, this is the whole point of my program, of every action I take, even my abstinence. It's all about a new way of living that I get in this new relationship with a higher power. And all of the instructions in the big book, all of the steps that I practice every day, it's all getting me to this, this new relationship. So step one helped me um, with just giving up, give, giving up all my old way. It obviously was not working for me. It got me to this place of welcoming the idea of dying. I didn't want to live anymore. And so all of that fighting and chasing and bullying and driving and controlling, since it wasn't working, I, I needed to just 
give that up, let that go. And steps two and three, um, it, for me, it's about seeking a working concept of a higher power and moving forward. I saw that I had a lot of old, flawed ideas about who my higher power is, what my higher power expects from me, how my higher power feels about me. Um, I thought that uh, I was supposed to be perfect. I sought perfection and the approval of the world. Like, I can really relate to Bill W. in that way. You know, I need to prove to the world that I can be successful, that I'm worthy, and I have to arrive. Um, I have a teacher friend who would always in staff meetings, she would say, oh, what? We were supposed to do that? She was super forgetful, and she always laughed at herself. And I would sit there, and I would judge her and say, man, she should try harder. She should get her act together. But secretly, I was so jealous because she just laughed at herself. And I would wished that I could humbly admit and laugh at my flaws. Instead, I, I thought I had to hide them and fight them. And if anybody would, like, draw attention to them and point them out, instead of wanting to laugh, I felt threatened. But um, I want to say this last week was the first week of school, and I was at a new job, a new school. There was so much for me to learn, and I made lots of mistakes. Like, I would take my students to a music class an hour early or, or not. I didn't catch that I was supposed to be on lunch supervision or um, forget to take attendance or whatever. And and reflecting on that, I can see that I was able to laugh at myself. I didn't get into this horrified feeling of, oh, no, I can't believe I'm that teacher who, who forgets these things. And um, I'm just so grateful. My, as I was checking in with my sponsor before this school year, um, talking about, you know, my fears, of, like I was bracing myself for all my old defects coming up and and she was able to tell me, Tamara, you are different. You are different now. And now I'm grateful that I can see that. I mean, in steps four and five, I got a lot of helpful information that uncovered um, my patterns of, as the big book calls them, unfailable goods. Um, here are some examples, like um, this old idea that it's shameful to do things wrong. Um, myself seeking and playing God, like if I can just get it right all the time, I'll be okay. Um, here are some more ideas. I have to figure life out on my own. God is able to help me, but is waiting for me to be worthy enough. I just have to exercise my willpower and stay on guard. If things are going my way, I'd better focus on not losing it. I have to control my thinking and my attitude. Um, some feelings are unacceptable, so don't give them attention. Uh, flaws are weakness, and weakness is unlovable. I have to be in control to be safe. I'm supposed to be the perfect teacher who understands every child and gives them everything they need. I'm supposed to be the one who makes a positive, life-altering difference for every student. Um, my students have to cooperate with my agenda. That's their job. They're supposed to do that so that I... You know, my agenda is to be the most, world's most amazing teacher, and so they can't get in the way of that. And my students have to appreciate my efforts. They're not allowed to have their own agenda, which could be different than mine. And the student's parents are not allowed to suggest that I'm not living up to this role of superhero teacher. And um, my happiness and security depend on a lot of things, like reality cooperating with me or having sufficient resources or the behavior and progress of others, or having plenty of time. The list is endless. 
Um, and so I was able to uncover all of this and see, wow, that's unsaleable goods. Those things are not working for me. So in steps six and seven, I got to ask God to remove them. Um, I'm going to go to page 42. Um, this is in more about alcoholism. It says, then they outlined the spiritual answer and program of action, which a hundred of them had followed successfully. And then I'm skipping a line that says, it, it meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out of the window. So these that I shared with you are some of my lifelong conceptions that um, I got to throw out the window. Um, and, and we agnostic at the uh, top of 48, it says, we often found ourselves handicapped by obstinacy, sensitiveness, and unreasoning prejudice, um, and obstinacy, stubbornness, unreasonableness, inflexible, self-willed resistance, and a lot of these old ideas for me were um, inflexible. And then um, on page 51, it says men's minds were fettered by superstition, tradition, and all sorts of fixed ideas. And superstition, one definition is an unjustified belief. So all of these beliefs that I had, I got to ask my higher power to remove them. And in steps eight and nine, oh, and, and when, when um, God removed them from me or is in the process of removing them, um, then I got to fill that void with my higher powers, unconditional love. And, um, and I got to ask my higher power, you know, how, how do you want me to show up in life? What new concepts can I bring to my day? And um, so in steps eight and nine, I learned that I do harm. This is part of my human experience. I cause harm. And I now have, I learned a way of, of uh, responding to that. I don't have to hide it, pretend I didn't, because it's so unacceptable. I see it. I now know how to make amends and, and um, practice new ideals in my relationships. Um, and step, steps 10 is where I practice all the stuff I learned in the previous steps every day, multiple times a day. Um, a recent uh, step 10 partner reflected that as I'm sharing my disturbance, the voice of my disease holds fear and negativity. And then I turn it around and I listen to the voice of my higher power and that voice comes through and it's gentle and positive. And it was so um, encouraging for me to hear this. And this is the voice I want to return to all the time. And so I do 10, uh, ten steps frequently. Um, and step 11 is how I expand this new relationship with a higher power. And I'm coming to believe in a new concept of God. Uh, a God that never abandons me, that wants to help me every moment, that tells me I'm worthy, calms my fears with love, a God that is safe, that is enough, and that is everything. And in step 12, I get to practice these principles and, and be useful. I get this sense of usefulness. So um, today, I protect my abstinence and I protect my spiritual fitness by... Um, using what I've, I've learned. And um, my happiness today doesn't depend on all that long list of things. It depends on the loving presence of my higher power. And how I think and feel about myself today 
my way of being in the world is um, some of those old concepts that God threw out the window for me, uh, they all like creep back in and I notice them a lot. Uh, sometimes I don't notice them until I'm doing my nightly review, but uh, thinking back over my day, but sometimes um, as even as the thought is creeping in, I'll notice it. And um, that's happening more and more naturally. And I, I turn to my higher power and I get to turn it around and I have freedom from the shame and I like who I am more and more. Um, so in recovery um, through what my higher power is doing for me, um, as I uh, remain abstinent and practice the steps, um, I am learning to not take myself so seriously. I'm, I'm trusting that God embraces and adores all of me and that my flaws are a part of what makes me human and unique and me, um, that I'm supposed to be human, that God likes me as I am, and I can learn to like myself as I am and just show up in the world as the real me. So I no longer have to hide and fight the real me as I did. Um, I, I'm not in that place of wishing I could die. I wake up, and I'm I'm so grateful for another day of life. Um, I'm, you know, looking forward to the challenges in the day and I don't know how this day is going to go. I can't see around the bend, but I know good things are around the bend, and I look forward to them. Um, I don't embrace all of my character defects, but I no longer think they make me unworthy. I notice them. I ask God to remove them, help me make amends, and I grow toward my ideals. And in my relationships today with my husband, my students, um, all my relationships, safe. It's safe for me to be myself, for them to be themselves. We all just show up and make mistakes and grow. And I I now no longer think it's my students' job to make my job easier. It's their job to show up as themselves. And I'll show up as me. And we'll just do this day together, humans doing what we do and having the experience we're meant to have today. I want to share um, some recent examples of of what God is doing for me that I can't do for myself to treat um, this part of my disease, this mental obsession. Um, and, and this has been so helpful, especially the last couple of weeks. Last week was the first week of school, and the week before that was just long days of staff meetings and trainings. And for me, meeting a lot of new people, a lot of new routines and procedures, um, and just not having all the answers. And so during this time, it has been really helpful to just be immersed in the solution, still working with my sponsees, still making calls to my sponsor, checking in with my sponsor, calls with fellows, 10 steps, giving service. I'm looking forward to the special edition. The time has been so, so helpful to me to, um, as, as all this stuff comes up because during this busy time of change, the voice of my disease can get really strong. And so, um, uh, like, okay, so a couple days ago, I had a few words with a student. <laughs> it makes me think of the story of Jim, how he, like, he just had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. And then the next paragraph, he's pouring whiskey in his milk. And so I, I told myself, you know, at the time, like, oh, it's not a big deal. But then in my nightly review, I looked back and said, oh, Tamara, that is serious. You harmed that student. 
you embarrassed him by calling him out in front of his friends and correcting him in front of them, and um, you harmed him, and this is a big deal. And so I got to um, do a 10-step and make amends and return to my ideals and my relationship with my students, and I got to practice love and tolerance. And, um, you know, what a, what a relief, what a relief that I get to see my humanness, and I now have a spiritual a spiritual program to follow to help me with this. Um, I found myself judging uh, one of the parents, and I got to return to acceptance. They are just who they're supposed to be. I'm not their higher power. I got to seek to understand them and bring love and light. Um, I noticed fear. Uh, we had a meeting with the special ed teachers. We talked about the students who were going to be in my room, and um, they're you know, all of the support they need, all the accommodations I needed to give them and their behavior plans. And and I had I noticed there was some fear after, like, I don't what if I don't know how to how to help and support these students or deal with their behavior? And I got to go to my higher power and, and remember I'm not alone. I'm not supposed to have all the answers. I get to just just have the goal of being helpful and be curious to see how it all works out. I noticed um, I was resisting reality, the reality that I have like, these long days of training, and um, that's hard for me. And I, I got to turn to my hair power again and ask for help and see that I don't have to ignore my feelings. I can, um, I don't have to bully myself into having a better attitude. I can just ask for acceptance and um, just know that I'm not alone in it. I noticed fear around a. a a work event that was had a meal at like a potluck and and so I did a 10 step and got to return to oh yeah I get to just show up and do service I can bring my simple meal and then just focus on the people I noticed myself trying to impress people and my higher power helped return me to just be just be camera just show up um, and then uh, bringing all of this home uh, to my husband <laughs> I noticed you know, more sensitivity because of the stress of the new job, like um, little things. He wasn't following my scripts. And, and I, I, my sponsor taught me to pay attention to the little things and not tell myself, this is no big deal. This is not serious. But to get to my higher power, um, do inventory, turn it around, and, and just uh, helped me so much to see, oh, I'm blaming him, and this was my choice. I'm irritated at him. I'm telling myself he doesn't love me, and that's not true. I can return to the truth, return to the care and protection of my higher power, and um, get relief if I do harm. I get to make amends. All of this is just becoming more and more automatic for me. It's becoming a, more of a working part of my mind. Um, what what my higher power is doing for me through many many tense stuff through the nightly reviews, the check-ins with my sponsor, working with others. I've learned so much working with sponsees. I learned from them. I learned from going through the big book again and again. And um, and things that I, you know, come, I hear coming out of my mouth, like, oh, yeah, my sponsor taught me that, and now I get it. <laughs> and um, just, just, um, all, all of the spiritual action bringing me to relief, relief. Um, I could see, let me give one more. 
example here. So um, I noticed some self-pity because um, after a day of training and socializing um, where I was, I was feeling pretty uncomfortable because I, I am an introvert and, and it takes energy from me um, even if I'm enjoying it. And so I was tired and ready to be done. But at the end of the day, all of the staff from the school uh, were taken out on a school bus and taken to a place to get a frozen treat. And I was standing there not having one and telling myself it's not a big deal. I had already done a couple of tons of steps that day. I thought I was fine. And I was ignoring my feelings. I was um, kind of pushing them down. I didn't, you know, but there was some self-pity that I felt like I didn't get to participate. And so um, I was later listening to the recorded earlier meeting, and and it hit me that um, I was wishing I could be normal and participate, and that is a big deal. And this was an invitation to check my spiritual fitness. So I did a 10-step, and I got to see the lies. Like, being different makes me less than, or people are judging me, or I don't belong. And I got to return to the loving care of my higher power who um, validated my courage. And um, and I, I, after that, I just had such a strong feeling of being happy, joyous, and free. So my, um, my intense life becomes more relaxed and bearable, even during a really busy time. And I feel good about who I am in the middle of it not having all the answers and having so much to learn. And um, actually with uh, being a compulsive overeater today, I love it. I love being different. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. Having this disease is a blessing. I get to be uniquely useful to others. I get to practice this 12-step way of life and have a new relationship with my higher power. Um, when uh, my disease says it's no big deal, I can remember my truth that a disturbance is a big deal. And if I want to stay spiritually fit, I need to acknowledge it, look at it, take it to the steps of my higher power. I share it. I make amends if needed. And I turn my mind to someone I can help. So God did do for me what I cannot do for myself. I found that I could recover. I got abstinent and I continue to protect my abstinence. I'm free from a physical craving that's beyond my mental control. I was guided through the steps, and I continue to practice what I learned in that. I continue to grow and enlarge my spiritual life. And um, this reveals what's blocking an effective relationship with my higher power. And um, as I take action, my higher power removes these blocks. I, I, action that I take includes asking my higher power to remove them making amends, sharing honestly. I pause and pray and listen, and I work with others. So now I'm free from that mental obsession that, that plagued me constantly. I actually get to live my life instead of thinking about food every moment all day long and how can I get some more and how can I control this? I shouldn't eat that, but I really want to eat that. It's amazing. I'm freed up to look at the people around me and, and be present with them and, and enjoy the adventures of the day. I'm going to uh, read from the top of page 87. This is an into action. 
It says, what used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. Being still inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God, it is not probable that we're going to be inspired at all times. We might even pay for this presumption in all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely upon it. So it truly is becoming more natural and automatic for me to go straight to my higher power. As soon as I wake up, it's like a habit. As soon as like my alarm goes off and I'm instantly into prayer. Or if I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm automatically into prayer. Or a notice of fear, I go straight to my higher power. Even... Even I'll have dreams where I'll like have a disturbance and I'm like doing a 10 step in my dream. I love it. Um, I, I, I don't have to find comfort in my old solution, the food. Um, the tools still support me. The stuff works supports me. I don't have to. Um, and even better than the truth that I don't have to seek ease and comfort in food is I don't have to be stuck in the miserable camera show, that bondage to self-will and driving myself and trying to make everything fit my script. Um, it's such a relief. I'm free to look at myself in the mirror, be comfortable in my skin, try new things, make mistakes, and find joy in the mistakes. My life has gone from being unbearable to being abundant, satisfying, and useful. And yes, those old thoughts come back. They sneak back into the window that they were thrown out of. And yes, I still do harm. And um, in recovery, it's just much less intense. It's less frequent. And it's safe for me to notice it and go straight to my higher power. And this is the treatment for my disease, abstinence, and the practice of the steps. And that that's what I wanted to share today. Thank you so much. I'll pass with that. Wow, wow, wow. What a share that was. Thank you so much, Tamara, for this clear, thorough, instructive, and extremely inspiring presentation this morning. Certainly a message of hope and possibility. Thank you so very much. The share ID for today's presentation, 20,575. That's 205. Tamara's contact information will be given at the conclusion of the recording, so stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question, questions only, to Tamara by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Susan C. In New York. Who is in New York? Susan C. Susan C. Thank you. Terry K. Terry K. in Tennessee. Terry K. Deborah M. from New York. Deborah M. Star one to unmute if you'd like to pose a question. All right, well, let's get started with Debbie B., Susan C., Terry K., and Deborah M. Okay, Debbie B., please go ahead with your question. 
Good morning, Debbie B. Compulsive Overeater out of Salt Lake City, Utah. And thank you so much, Tamara, for that beautiful and honest share. Um, my question for you is, did you do anything differently to come back after losing your abstinence than you did to first get abstinent the first time? That's all I've got. Thanks. Hmm. Thank you, Debbie. Um, at, at first, I I just did the same old things that I had tried before. I I tried to use all the same tools that I had used. I did meetings and phone calls, um, reached out to my old sponsor, read the literature. Um, the thing that I think was different is, well, a couple of things. One is that I no longer had this lurking notion that I could do it on my own. When I first came to OA, I kind of felt like, okay, give me the program, give me the tools, give me the meal plan, and I'll get control over my eating, and I've got this. When I came back, I was uh, really beaten down by the food, and I, I knew that I wasn't going to get this on my own power. So that's one thing that was different. And the other was, um, I, I found meetings that studied the big book and uh, then later was taken through the steps following the directions in the big book. And for me, that was a real game changer. And the people I, I called uh, were recovered through the big book and shared their experience with me in that. And that, I guess that's the solution I needed to hear. That's, I needed to understand my disease through the instructions in the big book and the um, the solution. So that those were the two differences for me. Debbie, thank you for that question. Thank you, Debbie. Susan C, your turn. Yeah, thanks so much, Leah and Tamara. I really enjoyed and got a lot out of your talk. My favorite part was when you said that you, and there's a question related to this, when you said that you notice that you're doing 10 steps in your sleep, and that to me speaks to it really seeping into the unconscious. And I've heard it said that, you know, we know the day that we put down the food and we have that marked on our calendar and etched in our brain, but we don't necessarily know the day when the anger started to lift or the fear lessened. Or in this case, when, you know, we started doing this work even in our sleep, and I wonder if you have a sense of the timing of when you started to integrate it enough into your being that it really seeped into your unconscious and your dream life. Thanks. Hmm. You know, um, when I uh, got recovered through the big book and started doing 10 steps, I was kind of upset, like, Really, I can't believe I have to do another 10 step on this same thing or another 10 step today. I did not have time to do all these 10 steps. But I I wanted recovery and I, I stuck with it. And um, and like, especially like around 10 steps with my husband, um, my sponsor told me, I think she said it was like a year of doing 10 steps before she really noticed a shift in her and it's something in some way that I that she and I were discussing, and I thought, oh, a year, come on. But now, um, yeah, I just needed to trust the process, and 
I don't, yeah, I cannot pinpoint a certain time when, oh, and then the fear lessened or the anger lifted. But I can say that this new job has helped a lot because, as I said, my sponsor said, Tamara, you're different now. And I am seeing that. I'm obviously, you know, I did harm to the student, so I'm still me, but I, I really see, um, I see so much more freedom to enjoy my relationship with my students, enjoy my job, even though I'm that teacher who doesn't know what she's doing in some circumstances. And it's, it's amazing to me. It's a miracle to me. And uh, yeah, I can't, I can't look back at the calendar and say, this is when um, I really got relief. It was, for me, it has been a very gradual spiritual awakening, just a little closer to my higher power, a little more automatic reaching out to my higher power. And if you're one of those people who took a 10th step for me in the last few days or this last week, you know, you, you know, I'm still, my defects are still there. And, um, but yeah, like I said, they're less intense, they're less frequent, and I don't have to stay in them very long. And um, that's that's my answer. Thank you, Susan C. Terry K. Your turn to pose a question. Thanks so much for your service, Leah, and thank you so much for your share. This is Terry K. in Tennessee. My question is related to your sharing about the experience of the relapse with those quote-unquote abstinent cookies and the trip that you took. And my question specifically is, did you have an immediate aware? At what point did you have an awareness that that was a relapse? And and was that something that, and how did you come to that awareness? On your own, through your higher power, or through your sponsor or someone else? And any thoughts around that topic of becoming aware that you were in relapse? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Terry, for that question. Um, so my awareness, really, I was in relapse before that, but I was doing a lot of justifying, uh, a lot of telling myself, well, I think you are being too perfectionistic with your food plan and your abstinence. I think you really can safely eat this or that. But that, I got honest with myself. The awareness came because I finished all of the cookies on my own on the drive back home and i just couldn't avoid the obviousness of how abnormal that would be and that i just couldn't justify like this is this is okay this is normal this is abstinence um nobody eats an entire bag of these this food item that you were going to share with people and i knew i, I just knew i was eating it because i was emotionally and socially uncomfortable and um i you know yeah it wasn't like i didn't ask my higher power um i just i I guess i just had to admit it to myself yeah i guess i gave up trying to find a lie to myself Thank you, Terry Kay, for your question. Deborah M., your turn. Hello? Yes. Oh, sorry. I was unmuting. Thank you so much. This is amazing. I'm in step six. 
And my question was, you mentioned the words, you said you were managing yourself. Can you, while you were in your steps, you said, you know, you were trying to manage yourself and you came to that. Can you give me some examples of what you mean by managing yourself? Thank you, and I pass. Yeah, <laughs> this is like the um, the story of my life, trying to manage myself. I and, and I really didn't get it when I, my current sponsor told me at the beginning of going through the steps with her, Tamara, this is not a self-help program. I thought, what? The, <laughs> I'm here to become a better person and get control. And so, uh, of course, I mean, it's a self-help program. The steps are going to help me help myself. This is what I thought. And because I have a, a whole lifetime of this idea, I, I picked up this idea, like a good, respectable person, a worthy person, manages herself um so i i would um try to figure out what do i need to do to be a good worthy person and make that happen and if anything around me got in the way then i was angry at them or at the circumstance but i thought i was supposed to control my eating control my thinking control my feelings control my performance control the image that you have of me um, it was all playing my own higher power and I didn't understand that I thought uh, I believed in God and I thought that God expected me to get my act together and manage myself better and what I um, am learning through this um, gradual slow spiritual awakening is that I don't have to. That's not my job. I get to just be Tamara today and turn to my higher power and ask, what's next? What's the next right thought or action? And um, just relax into the flow of it. Just, um, you know, just return to that flow of, of God, what's next? And, and um, I don't have to remove my own character defects. I don't have to, I don't have to control anyone, including me today, and that's a miracle. That's my answer. Thank you so much. Thank you, Deborah M. We still have time for a few more questions. Star one to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Margaret D. Georgia. Margaret D. Barbara E. from New Jersey. There was someone before Barbara E. that I missed, after Margaret D. Kelly H. Kelly H. Sarah G. Chris G. Okay, this is who I have. I have Margaret D., Kelly H., Barbara E., Sarah G., Pete B., and Chris G., Let's get started with Margaret D. Um, hey, Tamara, good morning. Uh, this is Margaret D in Georgia. My question is, as you transition from this um, self-sufficient, for, for me it's fearful, um, person into a more trusting person, can you comment about the... The, whatever that intangible thing is, that faith or trust that kept you just doing the next right thing, the next right thing, even though, like, 
from my own experience, in my heart of hearts, I know this is all backwards and I'm supposed to be, like you said, self-sufficient. But can you just comment on what it was like as that transition took place of giving up control and accepting relief from your higher power? Hmm. You know, Margaret, I think the thing that kept me moving in that direction was pain. The pain. I had experienced so much pain in my relapse. The physical pain from the disease, the emotional pain, the spiritual pain. And I, I was desperate for something different. And um, giving up my self-reliance was really, really hard. And I didn't know how to do it. It was going through the steps that taught me how to do it. I just knew in step one that my way wasn't working and I wanted to give it up. But um, the pain, yeah, the pain of the food motivated me to do the next, uh, read the next chapter in the big book, go through it with my sponsor, keep moving forward, take the next action in the steps. If I was afraid, do it anyway. If I was uncomfortable, do it anyway. I really wanted relief. Um, I wish I could um, help somebody who's in that much pain see the beauty ahead of them and the joy and the freedom and, and help them be motivated by that. But uh, if they're like me, probably it's the pain and the fear of being stuck in that pain that um, it, it helps us say, all right, I, I don't feel like picking up the phone, but I'm going to do it because something has to change. I can't take this anymore. So, yeah, that was my motivation. Thank you, Margaret D. Kelly H., Hi, it's Tally HT for Telephone um, from the UK. I just wanted to say thank you so much. Your share really, really reached me right at the time that I needed to hear it. Um, but my question to you is, you said um, when you wake up, you immediately turn to God or to higher power, sorry, or if you wake up in the middle of the night. Do you mind just explaining a bit more what that looks like or what do you, what's going in, what words or actions do you take when when you do that if that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah Kelly that makes sense um I got in the habit of using Tamara we lost you there star one ton mute Oh, thank you, Leah. Mm -hmm. I'm now unmuted. <laughs> uh, thank you, Kelly. Yeah, the um, the prayers that I use, I learned these prayers from the big book. I, I use the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer and the prayer um, that I be shown what my next step is to be and given what I need, uh, freedom from self-will. And, and as I pray these prayers, I... I meditate on them a bit. What do they? What does that mean to me this morning or in this moment? Um, like when I say, "God, build with me and do with me," 
I'll pause and what do I mean God build with me? I mean God take me and transform me however you want in your way, in your timing. If that means I'm going to um, do some harm today and then make amends and grow more toward my ideals. If that means I'm going to um, have a, a difficult experience that reminds me to turn to you, whatever, whatever, I trust you, God. I trust you now that you, you've got my best interest at heart. You care for me. You're personal to me. So, and, and um, the seven-step prayer, and there's so much in those prayers about um, so that I can be useful. And there's so much in those prayers that turn me away from my self-centeredness to I want who can I help. I, I also use that prayer, you know, what can I do today for the one who is suffering? And I use the prayer, um, uh, let love and tolerance be my code. Show me the way of patience, tolerance, kindness, and love. Um, it, all these little prayers, as I pick them up in the big book, uh, or I'll hear somebody share one on a meeting, like uh, heard the one, you know, just, God, I'm yours, I trust you. Sometimes I'll just say that prayer. When I hear one, I'll, I will, like, say, oh, that that's one I need to use right now. And I'll just grab onto that prayer and learn it and practice it until it becomes more automatic. Um, sometimes it's more free-flowing. Like, I'll just talk to my higher power as a friend. The prayers help me get started. Those memorized prayers help me get started and moved in that direction. So that's what it looks like for me. If I'm in a fear and I turn to my higher power, um, then especially, God, I'm yours. I trust you help me. But then I do the fear prayer. Um, God, remove this fear and direct my attention to what you would have me be. I'll say, God, what do you have to say to me in this? And I just get quiet. I also am a visual person, so I, I imagine my higher powers, hands on my shoulders or arms around me or just like caressing my cheek or something that makes me feel connected to my higher power. And thank you, Alka. Thank you, Tell H, for your question. Next question, Barbara E. I'm sorry, did you call on me? This is Barbara E. in New Jersey. I was unmuting. Yes, Barbara, go ahead with your question. Okay. Thank you so much you re for Tem Tamara. You really touched my heart with your uh, qualification. My question is much more pra pragmatic. I was thinking about that box of cookies that you ate, and I didn't know how long um, in the you've been in relapse at other points in your in your life, in your journey. And I was wondering how you handled that. Did your sponsor have you start again with step one at the beginning and read Bill's story? What did you do? How did you get yourself off of that slippery slope that we call relapse? Could you uh, just clarify that for me? I would so appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, my answer is I did none of that. I didn't get off that slippery slope for a couple of years. Uh, um, that Those cookies sent me into um, a lot of pain. I didn't, my, I didn't start over with the steps. Um, I did, I did, Stay occasionally in contact with my sponsor. Um, she didn't really know how to help me. She wasn't uh, really in the big book 
Um, so it took a long time for me to come back. I, but I will address um, another time after being abstinent. I, I had my last break in abstinence about four years ago. And it was, um, I, I ate something and then afterwards I was like, wait, was that compulsive? Was that uh, abstinent? And I wasn't sure. And I reached out to my sponsor who suggested I um, get with my higher power and pray and meditate. And I did a lot of other outreach calls. I did 10 steps. I uh, reached out to Recovered Follows. And I um, then got back with my sponsor and said, yeah, I'm going to call that a break in abstinence. And we did. We went back to step one. And um, we went back to the doctor's opinion. And um, and since then, I um, have been through the steps with uh, a couple of other people, too, and my current sponsor. And each time I go through, um, I just uncover more and get more spiritual strength. But, um, yeah, I, I, it, it does, it did help me with that break to get right on the phone and start calling and get real honest and um, really lean into the solution. But no, with the cookies, um, that it, I did not get into the solution and I did not um, get back recovery for a long time. Thanks, Barbara, for your question. Sarah G., your turn to pose a question. Hi, Sarah G. Um, I just wanted the code again for the, for the replay of the speaker. Twenty thousand five hundred and seventy-five two zero five seven five. Our next question comes from Pete B. Our final question comes from Pete B. Uh, thanks, Leia. <clears throat> thanks for your service, Tamara. Thanks for your uh, your your special edition. It was deep and heavy. And I, I have a question. My question is, um, you know, our book says that. God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. And I just, I'd like to hear your perspective on what this idea of being an agent for God looks like for you and just how you, what your perception of that concept is. Thank you, Pete. What a, um, that's a helpful question for me to, to pause and look at. Um, how am I an agent for my new director? Um, my my sponsor reminded me to in starting this new job that I have a new employer and that that's my higher power. So it looks like first of all that I am no longer the director. I I just notice when I'm trying to play higher power and I jump out of that director's chair and I ask. I ask, um, especially like working with a sponsee or a student. When when um, somebody who is on this line this morning, um, I heard say in a share maybe like three years ago or so, what do I know? I'm an addict. And I just grabbed onto that. And when I'm working with a sponsee, um, I will pray to my higher power, like, what do I know? I'm an addict. God, I don't know what this person needs to hear right now. So um, just let me be helpful. That's my aim, just to be helpful. And I think that's being an agent. And then, you know, things, it will come out of it. And maybe 
something I say or not. It may be something that the sponsee figures out for themselves. But I, I get myself out of the way by not trying to be their higher power or their director. And same with students. I get I just pause and say, God, I don't know what this student is going through today and what he needs to hear or what experience he needs to have. And so um, just let me be helpful. Just let me be useful. And um, sometimes I'll really be surprised at how I handle something. And I'll know that that wasn't me. That was um, me getting out of the way and just being a channel. Um, and I mean, it can even happen in my relationship with my husband, too. Just creating, you know, um, just get my ego out of there. I don't know what my husband needs. I don't have to understand him or him. He doesn't have to understand me. I just want to be helpful. And so, and same with like doing a special edition. I, I, I did 10 steps. And one thing I heard from my higher power was, Tamara, you just show up. You just show up. And whether you say it or not, I will help somebody who's hurting hear something they need to hear. And it's just not about you, Tamara. And that's just such a relief. I'm so free to just ah, just show up and just be me because I, I'm no longer running the show. I just get to be an agent. And it is this very satisfying feeling of usefulness to, to see how somebody's higher power does for them. And I got to be a part of it and a witness to it. That's my answer. Thank you for that question, Pete. Yes, thanks, Pete. Thanks to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you so much, Tamara C., for giving so much of yourself this morning. Truly a wonderful example of God's handiwork this morning in your presentation. Thank you very much. Today's Share ID, 20,575. And we're going to close now. From page 164 in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you till then.